This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Can we uh, have a drum roll, please? Thank you. Nice chops there, by the way. And they happen to belong to the first guest on our show today, Galen Lemon. He's a percussionist with the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, which gets underway this week. Galen's going to share some of the sounds of this year's festival with us, and he'll let us in on some of the skills and thrills of modern orchestral percussion. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to stick with the percussive theme. We'll hear from Afro-Cuban drummer Michael Spiro on the very special musical tradition known as bata. Stay tuned. Okay, on to part one of today's show. The job of percussionist may not be the most glamorous in a symphony orchestra. The traditional classical repertoire can be pretty thin on percussion parts, save for the odd cymbal clang or timpani thump. But that's changing. Modern composers have gotten hip to the power of percussion and are now writing for all sorts of percussive instruments, from marimbas and vibes to congas and electronic drum pads. And under music director Marin Alsop, the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music has become a magnet for some of the most eclectic and percussion-friendly composers. This year's concert lineup includes Avner Dorman's Spices, Perfumes, and Toxins, a dazzling concerto for two percussionists. Well, today we're going to hear from one of those two, Galen Lemon. He's a well-known Bay Area musician. Along with his duties in the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra, he's principal percussionist with Symphony Silicon Valley, He teaches percussion at San Jose State University and even records soundtracks for movies and video games. Last week, I paid a visit to Galen's home, which doubles as his studio. He was standing in his living room, hard at work, preparing for this year's festival, practicing on a pair of Trinidadian steel drums. It's uh, Moments of Bliss by uh, Brent Dean. And what we have in front of us, if people have never seen the steel pans, are um, two gleaming chrome dishes uh, with little raised areas inside, little welts inside, and each one of those is a note. How many notes do they have between the two of them? Probably three octaves. Pretty good, pretty good range. A pretty good range. Yeah. So you're, you're hitting those little raised areas with mallets. Um, reaching I'm, I'm doing my best. <laughs> it sounded good to me. I think I heard some moments of bliss there, actually. Good. They're not drums I've ever played before, so I've really had to learn how to play this part. Uh, and that's been a challenge. <laughs> how long have you had to master these? Uh, it's been about a week. <laughs> a week? Yes, a week. People spend years learning this instrument. Well, I'm not sure if you gave me another piece of music. I, I think I'd still have to obviously work on that. Uh, but right now, I'm just focused on learning this one piece of music for the festival. Well, why don't we see some of your other instruments? Yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of instruments downstairs. Okay, great. We can take a look. Come on in. Thanks. So... This is where I keep a majority of the stuff, my marimba, my timpani, my vibes. Every home should have a timpani, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So we got, what do we have in front of us here? We have... I have four four drums, basically a bass drum. And then I have three toms. And then I have a a, a darbuka. It's kind of an hour-shaped instrument. It's a Middle Eastern instrument. Um, And then I have some uh, some cymbals, a crash cymbal. Splash cymbals. There's three of those. There's a hi-hat. There's a tambourine that's mounted onto a stand. And then I took some, a pair of Chinese cymbals that I actually got in China. They're actually Chinese crash cymbals. Um, and I inverted them and put them together, and they kind of have this trashy kind of a sound. Hmm. So 
I'm not sure if that's exactly what Abner's looking for, but that's what I came up with. So We're talking about Abner Dorman, the Israeli composer whose piece Spices, uh, Perfumes. Perfumes, and Toxins, great name, by the way, <laughs> is going to be played in the August 8th concert, the second night of the festival. That's correct. Uh, with two percussionists, you being one of them. And uh, you're standing, I should say. You're not sitting at a drum kit, but this is a drum kit, really. Well, yeah, he says drum kit in the in the music. But when we looked at the – we had the, the video of the Perkadu playing this piece. They're really a great duo. And um, and they were they stood up and they played this. Mm. So that's what we're doing too. Mm. Hey, maybe you can give us just a little sample because I've heard a, a recording of this piece from the Israel Philharmonic, and I know it has some rockin' drum sections. <laughs> I can play a little bit of it. Okay. You're going to have to get a little I'm further have to away. Back up here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is uh, actually the third movement, Toxins, the very beginning of the movement. You know, it's funny. I think when, when people think classical percussion, you know, they think, okay, you guys are like clockwork. You're really precise, but you don't rock hard, you know, like a rock drummer or a jazz drummer or a pop drummer. But uh, I think you're giving the lie to that idea. I, I think that's, that's the cool thing about this piece is it really is supposed to groove. And I think that's one of the things that when I first played the Cabrillo Music Festival with Marin, I, I just noticed that she does a lot of that. She really likes to groove when she does the music. A lot of conductors want to take more control, but she really finds that tempo that works so everybody's playing together, and it's just like playing in a, a big band. It's it's just really great. So that's what makes it fun. She gets a lot of uh, composers um, for the festival who really have a, a good percussive sense and really feature percussion a lot, I've noticed, over the years. Well, I think that it's 20th century music, and it's uh, percussion has kind of come into its own, and... Um, and so you're finding composers using it. And, and really, just in the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, the marimba's gotten bigger, and there's just, there's just so much more instruments, and you're, you're finding instruments from other parts, uh, different parts of, uh, of the world, like the darbukas in this p particular piece or the steel drums, you know. So um, that, that aspect of the music is really happening, too, with percussion. Um, you're mentioning the darbuka, which is a lot like a dumbek, a Middle Eastern kind of drum. Correct traditionally play with the fingers but you're playing it with a stick here in your drum kit you play it we actually play it with sticks here in this this particular movement toxins but in the first movement uh spices uh where the two darbukas are in front of the marimba uh we play them with marimba mallets mm -hmm. and then there is a section in the piece where we put mallets and we play the marimba with our fingers and then we reach up and we play the darbu uh, darbukas with our fingers as well uh, so you have to master sticks mallets and hand drumming <laughs> Exactly. I didn't know classical percussionists ever had to do any hand drumming. We do hand drumming all the time. Oh. And, and, in fact, there's a, on that same concert, the first piece on the program is a piece where uh, the percussionists have to play um, bongos and congas and stuff. So, you're, you're constantly, you're, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting with percussion. You, have, you, you spend your entire life, I think, learning how to do different things. It never gets old. Mm. You, uh, you have to cover a much wider range of instruments than I guess anybody else in the orchestra by far. You have to do these rhythm instruments, drums, and then tuned instruments like marimba and vibraphone and glockenspiel and on and on. A lot of people, when they think of percussion, first of all, they think of volume. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't want to live next door to a percussionist. Uh, but really, when you really look at what a percussionist has to do, if you're, if you're an all-around percussionist, you're just like a pianist where you're playing marimba. You're reading treble clef and bass clef. You have to be an expert when it comes to rhythm because you're expected to, to be able to do that. Uh, as well as keep really solid time, uh, and you, that you really expect to do that better than other instrumentalists as well. So, and then when you add all the ethnic drums and all the other things you have to do, and playing timpani, I mean, you have to be able to tune, you have to be able to sing pitches and hear whether you're in tune and out of tune. There's really a lot to it. 
when you say you have to be able to tune, you've got that pedal. Is that's what you're talking about that's with the correct. timpani, that's which correct. changes the tone of the drum. Mm-hmm. And we have to tune all our drums to some, you know, even a even a tom. You can you can actually tune the drum. I mean, you really have to go around and make sure that every lug is in tune with its with the the one next to it. So it's really kind of like timpani in a way, except you just don't have the pedal there. And and while we're extolling all of the uh, versatility a percussionist has to have, I want to add that you are have to be very athletic because you have to move. <laughs> from like one station to another to play these various instruments. I have seen you guys running around there, and you look pretty trim to me. Well, I run a little bit, but uh, but I think just playing percussion, I mean, keeps you in better shape. I mean, you kind of, I mean, not all percussionists uh, are in great shape, but um, I like to feel like that, yeah, it kind of keeps you in better shape. Uh, I, I had to play a gig on Monday, and I had to load up six timpani and a bass drum and get them in my van, and man, when I, you know, it's it's tiring doing that. So what's not to like about being a percussionist in an orchestra? You guys don't get as many solos, I bet. Well, actually, playing in a regular orchestra, I play in Symphony Silicon Valley, and and I I have to tell you, it's just not as much fun. I mean, playing Cabrillo is so much more fun because I I went to school, I spent all these hours practicing and doing all this stuff, and you get into an orchestra, and I make sure I bring my book with me because I'm going to sit there for, for sometimes a half an hour and not play anything. And so you you don't see me reading very often at the Cabrillo Music Festival. We're playing most of the time. <laughs> but you go back before the 20th century, and you have pieces where nothing happens percussion-wise until, you know, a single crash of the cymbals or something like that. Exactly. Great. Let's look at some of your other instruments here. Okay. In fact, just beyond the, the drum kit is a magnificent marimba. This is a five beautiful, octave. beautiful piece. This is of... a five-octave marimba. And marimbas have really grown. Uh, they used to be, the standard size for a marimba was pretty much four octaves. It went down to the, the C and the bass clef staff. Uh, and it was, uh, started there and go, it goes up four octaves. And then they decided, well, it needs to go down to an A below that. I don't know exactly why they picked A. Uh, and then they decided, well, you know what, the guitar literature is really great stuff for the marimba. And the guitar goes down to an E, uh, although it's an octave higher. Uh, they decided that they needed to have the marimba to go down to an E. And now it goes down to the low C, which is really cello range. So we can play Bach cello suites and that sort of thing on the marimba. So really, when I was going to school at San, San, went to San Jose State University, I spent most of my time playing marimba, uh, reading treble clef. But now you have to be able to, just like a pianist, you have to read bass clef and treble clef. You've got the, the entire range here. Yeah. And I know you've got some marimba pieces coming up in the Cabrillo Festival. Well, we've got, we've, obviously, we've got the concerto. So, and, and again, uh, this is uh, Spices, uh, Perfumes, Toxins by Avner Dorman, correct. which uh, starts off with marimba. That's correct. Yeah, the whole piece starts off with the marimba. Both players play marimba. I can give you a little taste of that. Yeah, let's do that. Can we hear a little bit more of that bass note, though? That is so beautiful. (laughs) So the real challenge on this piece, because being I'm playing the one the one percussion, it's the percussion one part, is that I play mostly in the upper register. I don't play in the lower register quite as much. This, the player two part really plays more in the low register. The idea is that it's supposed to sound like one gigantic marimba. Um, and so my mallets are a little bit harder. So if I'm playing down here, you could just tell it's a little knockier. Mm. I'd have to use a little softer mallet in order to get a better sound. But if I have to play the really high register, I need harder mallets, so I have to do that. Ah, and you, we should say you have two mallets in each hand. So you can yeah, cover. it's pretty common we use four mallets. So. You ever try three in a hand? Uh, <laughs> there's been a few times where I've had three in one hand, uh, but it's uh, and you can move it. You can actually move the mallets 
when you have three in one hand, so I'm showing you here right mm. now. So you can move the mallets around, but it's obviously a little tougher to oh, do. Oh, definitely. And uh, it's not the same. It's easier to play with four mallets. Yeah, yeah. Um, you started being an orchestra percussionist with an actual job at the age of 19, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, they, uh, I was at San Jose State at that time, and they said, we're going to have auditions for the San Jose Symphony. And I thought, oh, okay, well, what do you have to do? And actually, I think I was a sophomore, and there was another person there, Shelley, who was a sophomore, and there were several grad students, and we beat them out. So that was pretty cool. When was this? 73. Okay, so a lot of your peers at that time, if they had any interest in drums, wanted to be Keith Moon or someone like that. <laughs> what led you in the direction of classical percussion? Well, I think that uh, I just realized that if I wanted to go to a college and get a degree in percussion that I simply had to play mallet instruments. So I started playing this instrument when I was a senior in high school. I, I actually read rhythms really well, but I couldn't read notes on a staff. Uh, uh, I couldn't play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or anything because I didn't know how to read those notes. And so when I was a senior in high school, I started learning how to do that. And it's a process. It takes time. Did you ever have, a, you know, sort of a, a, another temptation, though, to go in the rock or, or pop direction? No, not really. I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that when I was going to school or before I started San Jose State that I really gave a lot of thought to what I was going to do once I got my degree. I just knew I liked playing music, and if you have to get a degree in music, and this is what you have to do, so I was doing it. And uh, my brother and I, actually, he plays guitar, and uh, we used to play together. Uh, and Because there were bands, a lot of bands. You could, you could drive down the street, and there would be three or four bands on a block garage bands playing and so we weren't any we weren't different uh, any different than a lot of those kind of groups we'd play together one difference I, I hear that classical percussionists live longer i don't know about if that's true or not <laughs> i hope it is but uh, i i kid my students and tell them that uh i when i'm 80 years old i still want to be able to play uh, and that's kind of the gift of music, I think, is be able to do it for a long time. But that they're going to have to come to the house and they're going to have to pick up my marimba for me and then take it to the wherever we're going to play so that I can stand there in front of it and play it. Mm. Um, so, so behind us, uh, turning away from the marimba, we have yet another mallet instrument, um, and this is the vibes, the vibraphone. You want me to play a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'd or? love that. Yeah. Okay, all right, cool. I'll just give you a little idea of uh, what this piece is like. Perfumes. It's Perfumes. The, yeah. It's the, the second movement. Second movement of Abner Dorman's piece. For, for those uh, sort of uh, percussion and music geeks in, in the audience, in the listening audience, what kinds of time signatures are you having to deal with in this composition? Um, four, four time, common time. Okay, pretty uh, straightforward. But 15, 16, a lot of 7, 8. Uh, there's a lot of the piece that's in four, four time. But you know, it's funny. I don't even think about the time signatures. Mm. I just play it. Mm. And doesn't uh, seven eight have a hugely different feel? I mean, it, and it does. And most of the time, seven eight is what we in music call two plus two plus three. Okay. Or two okay. plus three plus two, or three plus two plus two. So it breaks down into simpler. Uh, but in sections. this piece, yeah. it's not that way. It's dan dan tika taka kan kitika kan. So it's really kind of like two. Uh, uh, it's kind of divided in 16th notes. It's almost like saying instead of 7, 8, 14, 16. Mm -hmm. And you divide it a little differently. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of it's almost like two 17, 7, 16 bars. Mm -hmm. Sorry to get so mm -hmm. technical. No, but. no, but for our Western years, I mean, we're used to 4, 4 and, and, uh, and 3, 4, which is waltz time. And, right. And when we hear something like 7 beats per measure, it sounds a little bit off. Right. That's why when you're practicing with a metronome, there's times where I put the – first of all, in this piece, when I practice with a metronome, I can't use quarter notes as the basis of the beats. I have to use eighth notes. But then there are some times where I come up to uh, a, a measure that has 15, 16, and then I'm off by one sixteenth note. I keep playing. And then eventually it comes back and it gets back on. Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to, to make sure your timing is really good. 
And I'd like to let listeners know that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. And in this part of the show, we're featuring Galen Lemon, percussionist with the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra. I paid a visit to his home studio, where he shared some of the sounds of this year's Cabrillo Festival and described some of his trade secrets. They include not only playing, but also making instruments, like these strips of spring steel I found hanging from stands in his practice room. That's one of the instruments that we use for the spices piece. Uh, In the last movement, it's the toxins. And uh, this strip of metal is actually something that you can't buy commercially. It's something that I went out and uh, actually made, purchased the metal. Has a weird sound. And then we decided to get bigger ones. We have six-foot ones over here. So you have the bigger one and then the smaller one. Well, I think I've heard this sound effect before, but I never realized what it came from. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really a cool sound. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's funny, this, this particular Cabrillo Festival, uh, they call for tuned anvils. And you know what an anvil looks like. I mean, it's really heavy. And, so, and they use tuned anvils in, um, in operas, like Wagner operas. Uh, what about so, the anvil chorus? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that uses tuned anvils. So what I did is I actually made some tuned anvils. I'm gonna, sh- I'm gonna sh- get one for you right now. So now, I cut some steel, and um, I kind of got lucky because I had, I had my saw and I cut the steel off, and and I used it to, I uh, used a mallet, and I could actually pitch these. And so um, we're using, like, what we call tuned anvils. Anvils. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to explain here because I pictured the the, the gigantic thing that a blacksmith uses. Exactly. But if you hit this, it actually surprisingly sounds pretty good. Okay. And I have an anvil out in my garage. And when I listen to that anvil, and uh, because not everywhere on an anvil sounds great when you're playing percussion. You have to hit it in a certain place. And these actually sound pretty good. Okay, now what we're looking at, actually, just to let listeners know, is not anything like an anvil. It's a, it's a piece of square steel. Mm-hmm. It's hollow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's just cut into a certain length. Obviously, E here is lower, so it's longer. Looks like maybe the square legs of a steel desk or something cut it, off. It, it, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you buy this, it's really expensive to buy. If you make it, it's not so bad. (laughs) So let's hear hear a little bit of these anvil notes. Well, you know, let me me see if I can grab a hammer. Let me see if I can find a hammer here. So it's a pretty good sound out of a square piece of steel. And which piece in the Cabrillo Festival is the anvil played? It's in the last concert. It's on the uh, Kernis piece. Invisible Mosaic 3. Aaron J. Kernis. Yeah. Uh, Now, why would um, Mr. Kernis, or any other composer for that matter, make you go out and and create an anvil when you've got all those chimes and bells and vibes and all those other great instruments already? I don't know. You'd have to ask him, I guess. Uh, (laughs) I thought about... I thought of, I know that like for for operas and stuff, sometimes they use different pieces of pipe. You can go to a, your hardware store locally and you can grab round pieces of pipe and you can just find different lengths and you can just use that. And uh, and so I thought about doing that, but Mr. Kernis uses steel pipes in this piece too. And so if he uses steel pipes, then that kind of destroys the idea of actually doing that. So I ended up really having to make the tuned anvils. You know, if you're a percussionist, your arsenal just keeps growing and growing and growing. That's why I don't keep all my instruments here at the house. I don't have room. Mm. And we've got some gigantic-looking timpanis here in the corner. Gee, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to at least give us a tiny tiny bit of timpani. Oh, okay. I'm not the timpanist for the festival. That's all right. We won't tell anybody. Okay, let me me grab my sticks over here. Actually, on um, Monday, we did a recording up at Skywalker Ranch. Uh, we did uh, uh, some video game recording uh, for uh, Uncharted 2. We, we've also we've done the Bart Simpson video game. Um, we did uh, 17 Again, which is a movie that came out this, this spring, and also Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. So I do quite a bit of recording about Skywalker Ranch. This and, is uh, George Lucas's uh, facility, um, and uh, you're doing soundtracks for both uh, movies and for video games. Video games, yes. Do you have a, a segment you can play from one of those? No. Okay. <laughs> well, what do you they ask you to do for a video game? Oh, you know, they just, 
I can't, it's kind of hard to explain, but they just have, you know, basic, obviously, the music is not the most important thing, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it does, you know, just like a movie, you don't even know, know it's there, but it does add to it. If there was no music there, you'd obviously notice. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the same when Homer's strangling Bart to not have some percussion. <laughs> Maybe. I'm not sure exactly how they used it. So, I mean, we, typically we go in and we record, and we don't even really know how the whole thing is put together. So they do that after. It's post-production stuff. So, so these are, these are the timpani. Um, isn't that like the Olympics or something? Yes, it is. Yeah, there, there you go. I notice you have on your music stand right in front of the timpanis, Michael Doherty's "Raise the Roof," which uh, was performed at the Cabrillo Festival oh, a couple, couple of years, years ago. ago. And, and it has a big timpani part. It does. And, and I've actually played the solo. Uh, I did it with the San Jose Wind Symphony uh, last, I think last year, last spring. So we performed that piece, and, uh, and it's a lot of fun to play. Yeah. Well, Galen, to, to finish up, uh, why don't we hear just a, a bit more um, uh, one of these pieces you've been working on? Okay. Uh, I can play just a little bit more of Spices. And this is on marimba. It's on marimba. Thanks. Yeah. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you very much. Galen Lemon is a percussionist with the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra. He'll be featured in a number of this year's performances, including Spices, Perfumes, and Toxins, a concerto for percussion and orchestra, on Saturday, August 8th. And by the way, the piece we heard him playing on the steel drum at the beginning of the interview, well, that was misidentified as being from Brett Dean's composition, Moments of Bliss. It's actually from Brett Dean's piece, Amphitheater, which is part of the opening night performance, Friday, August 7th. The Cabrillo Festival runs today through August 16th, and for more information, go to cabriomusic.org. And as we at KUSP have been doing for low these many years now, we will once again be airing a number of the Cabrillo Festival concerts, beginning with our live broadcast of the opening night performance this coming Friday, August 7th. The concert starts at 8 p.m., and the pre-concert broadcast begins at 7. I'll be hosting, and I'll be joined by KUSP's Jane Gilvin. Hope you join us. And KUSP will also be taping a number of the other concerts and airing them beginning August 18th. For a complete schedule, go to KUSP.org. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Now for part two of our percussion special, Bata Drumming with Michael Spiro. He's a Bay Area percussionist with an international reputation in salsa and jazz circles. He's recorded and performed with Ella Fitzgerald, Gilberto Gil, Eddie Palmieri, Carlos Santana, and many other greats. But his heart belongs to Bata. Bata originated in West Africa centuries ago, a sacred music of the Yoruba people. It was carried by slaves to the New World, where it was reborn in places like Cuba and Brazil. Michael Spiro has studied, taught, and played Cuban bata for almost 30 years. He's also a skilled record producer, and we're going to hear a number of his CDs today. We'll start with this one. It's a bata recording in which he performs all the drum parts, thanks to multi-tracking, and sings in the chorus. Mike Spiro, welcome. Thank you. When did you first hear Bata drumming? The early 1970s, I guess. 
Um, I heard uh, three Americans actually play Batad Rumming at the Greek Theater in a show opening for Eddie Palmieri. In Berkeley. In Berkeley. What did you think? I was stunned. Um, nothing I'd ever heard in my life like that. Uh, in a, some very real sense, swore that moment that day that that was going to be me. So what did you do next? Uh, I kept um, practicing the conga drum and then uh, went and found the guy that was directing that group who lived in San Francisco and started studying with him, studying the conga drum. Who was that? That was a guy named Marcus Gordon, who was a gentleman that actually initiated me into the religion. Santeria. Uh-huh. Still my friend, still my, what we refer to as a padrino, still my confident, still my elder. And um, at that time, he wasn't teaching anybody. At that In that era, you couldn't really study bata with anybody. There was no such animal. Here in the Bay Area? No, in the United States. In the United States. It just wasn't an option. And so he took me a very long way into Afro-Cuban folkloric drumming, separate from the bata drum. And then in 1978, I left the Bay Area. I went to school at UC Santa Cruz. I got my degree there. And then I went to University of Washington and to go to graduate school. And in the middle of my graduate studies in 1980, he called me and said, if you'd like to learn to study bata drumming, I'm going to be teaching in September. And a week later, I packed up my stuff and moved to San Francisco. And that pretty much um, since then has been the center of your life? I suppose that would depend on one's perspective of what the center is. Mm -hmm. That is to say, uh, to the public, of course, I think the center of my life would be viewed as um, playing in salsa bands and and producing records and so forth and so on. I mean, that's... And backing some well-known musicians. Yeah. 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 But in, in terms of certainly in my own mind and to this day, yes, that is the center of... been the center of my life. So... It is a strange thing to say that you go to a concert one day and that one day completely transforms your life experience. It's sort of the love at first sight thing, which we all go, no such animal. But in my case, I think that was true. What was it about Bata that... Uh, I don't know that I can answer that. Yeah. Um, you went from being sort of an apprentice um, Anglo kid... You know, to being someone who, as I understand it, is considered something of a bata honcho? Well, um, I guess, again, all things are relative. Um, you, Your radio listeners can't see the photos on my wall, but those are the bata honchos. I will always be and continue to be their student and their apprentice. It's just that almost all of them have passed on. Um so as our elders pass on, one day you wake up and look around and go, I'm the oldest guy in the room. <laughs> um, one could say that I'm a honcho, I suppose, in the United States. Uh, I always consider myself a student of this tradition and always will. So I'm not likely to put that label on myself. Perhaps others might, um, but it's all relative. So, Mike, why don't we hear um, a sample of Bata music, um, and, and you can tell us what we're going to hear. This is from one of your CDs. Well, it's, it's actually from a CD that I produced. Um, it's of my teacher and his group, recorded back in 1996. Um, this is Regino Jimenez Saez, who was, until his death a few years ago, considered one of the major uh, players of Bata drumming and uh, the style from Havana, from the capital city of Cuba. His itotele player, or second in command, if you will, uh, was Fermin Nani, who passed just this last year. And his Oconcolo player, or the third in command, if you will, is Jose Pilar. This piece is um, the piece that you always start with in the Cuban Bata liturgy, which is dedicated to the Oricha, or the deity El Egua, who opens the crossroads, is the... Uh, opener of the roads, so he's sort of Hermes, if you will. Ah. And um, you always begin with this piece, so it might be a good piece to start with here tonight. Great, let's hear it.
So, Mike, can you tell us a little bit of what is going on in that rhythm? You know, what kind of drums we're hearing, how they're interlocking? Well, bata drums uh, in Cuba as opposed to in Nigeria, which is a very different system, a very different system, uh, are always played in sets of three. Um, there's literally a small drum, a middle drum, and a big drum. The problem is that each the drums are double-headed, they're hourglass-shaped, and you sit them on your lap and you play both heads. So even though there are only three drums, there are six drum heads being played at the same time. So it's very hard to tell until you train your ear who's doing what and where the sounds are coming from. And it can be very disorienting if you don't know what's up and, and very confusing. You actually have uh, three bata drums sitting next to you. Um a large one, a medium one, and a small one. And I was wondering if you could just show us a little bit of how each is played and maybe some of the patterns they're playing in a composition like the one we heard. Yeah. So this is the smallest drum. It's called the Okonkolo. And on the piece that we just heard, um, it actually plays a very consistent ostinato pattern. Um, and I'm just going and one, and two, and three, and four. So by itself, it sounds fairly elementary. And that's all there is to it, really, for the most part. It does have one change in the middle of the piece, but, you know, that that's not particularly relevant to kind of how they sound. And the thing is that the middle drum will play a one, a two, a three, a four, a one, a two, a three, a four. So you get to keep the beat, and I'll play the part. We'll see how you do. Uh, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So this interlocks with the part you just heard to create a certain thing. This is just the first road of that whole piece that you heard. And then the low drum, <coughs> which is called the Iya, is the drum that directs the ensemble, and you can hear the bells that are wrapped around it kind of rattling. And it directs the ensemble by calling, calling the rhythm in, and then in turn, by what it plays, it tells the other two drums what to do. without the other two drums going, it sort of sounds like something from Mars. Even with the other two drums going, it can sound like something from Mars. So, um, would it be fair to say that this is pretty complicated rhythmically? Yes, it would be fair to say that. When I listen to, to Cuban Bata, as in the piece we just heard, I hear, you know, a regular cycling rhythm like the one you described as an ostinato, you know, bump, 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 mm -hmm. bump. But then I hear all these accents that to my untrained ear sound off the beat. They are. It's, they're off the beat. No, that, yeah, but that, 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 that's not the untrained ear. That's the trained ear. They are completely off the beat. And jagged sounding, you yes. know, sort of off-center sounding. Yes. And that's, that to me is the characteristic sound of Bata that has always been very mysterious to me. Um, this is not music for the faint of heart. In my day, uh, you would never be allowed to study Bata during if, if you weren't already a very accomplished conga player. Mm -hmm. Sophisticated, complex, mm. really demanding stuff. Extremely. And beyond the drumming, um, along with the drumming, singing is a, a big part of bata. Well, actually, y you could actually put it the other way around. 
that the bata drums are accompaniment to the singing. Ah. So the singing is actually primary, uh-huh. and the drummers are simply the accompanists. Do, do you sing? I do. You do. So um, why don't you select um, an example for us to hear of uh, bata drumming and singing? Let's pick one from uh, that same CD of my teacher that you heard earlier, uh, where this is uh, uh, Amelia Pedroso, the lead singer who passed away several years ago, uh, singing uh, some songs for Chango. These are very uh, sort of classic Cuban repertoire songs for Chango. Beautiful singing. Very. Yeah. Mike, what's the name of that CD? You produced it? That's the CD that, again, that I produced. It's called Iluanya, uh, Sacred Rhythms Dash Iluanya. Uh, and again, um, that was one of those serendipitous things where when my teacher and his group were a part of this workshop up in Banff, I didn't know till I got there that there was a recording studio there. My teacher had always taught me for free for years and years and years. And I went, hey, here's a way I could actually sort of do something for you because I know how to make records and I could make this record for you. And then there would be this hope, small but nonetheless steady little income coming in that we could take the money that would come in and, and help support you all. I suppose the, one of the terrible sadnesses for me is there were five of them in the in that group that were there and only one is left hmm. so uh i wasn't able to to sustain them economically for very long uh so there's only one one left so it's kind of sad for me um you mentioned earlier that you weren't just initiated into the drumming way back 30 years ago but yeah. you were initiated into the, the faith that goes with this drumming, Santeria in mm-hmm. Cuba, mm-hmm. which is derived from Yoruba, mm-hmm. religious beliefs, mm-hmm. consisting of Orishas, these deities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me about that part of your life and, and that part of Bata. Certainly, traditionally, uh, initiation into the religion was a, a, a prerequisite uh, to study. Uh, in my case, I was initiated my first initial step uh, all the way back in 1980, and then initiated as a priest in 1998. So it was 18 years uh, between step A and the that that step, and so forth. So this is the music of the, of the religion that I chose to to adopt. Yeah, and we're sitting here in in your studio right mm-hmm. now, and in front of me is an altar. Yeah. Um, I see. Um, Images of what I take to be Orishas. Yes. Yeah. I see candles. I see uh, flowers and offerings. I see rum, candy, mm-hmm. um, various kinds of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what so what role is does Santeria play in your life? Uh, I'm not sure how one can describe how faith plays a role in anyone's life. Yeah. Um, and that would be a lengthy... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, a discussion that would only bore your listeners to tears, but I think I'll try to say simply that um, it uh, provides a focus, if you will, and a direction for the decisions that I make in my life. Is there a particular Orisha, that is, deity uh, in Santeria, that, that you feel Close to, or is it? Well, I am. A, every priest who is initiated is initiated to a specific oricha. So mine is Obatala. I'm a child of Obatala. Um, <clears throat> Tell us who Obatala is. Obatala is the, the, the oricha of wisdom, knowledge, justice, um, 
Obatala is actually androgynous, but he's generally thought of as a he. Not always. There are aspects of him that are female, but the male aspects of him uh, tend to be uh, one of uh, elder, wise man, um, white-haired, as opposed to, for example, uh, an Orisha like Chango, who is also male, but it's all about you know machismo and and virility, uh, so we'll settle our argument outside as opposed to settling our argument with discussion and and intellect. So who who do you think Obatala would support for president? <laughs> <laughs> and we will pretend you didn't ask that question. <laughs> and I want to let listeners know that they are tuned to KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm the host, Robert Polly. And in this half of our all-percussion show, an interview I recorded last year with the Afro-Cuban drummer Michael Spiro. He's a leading exponent of bata, the ceremonial music of the Cuban Santeria religion. And to start this part of the interview, I asked Michael how Cuban bata differs from the West African Yoruba music that it sprang from, heard in this recording from Nigeria. So, so do you hear the, the relationship between that music from Nigeria and the music you play? Well, I recognize that as Nigerian bata drumming. Uh-huh. That is sonically. that. But even then, uh, it doesn't sound like Cuban bata drumming. Um, we should point out that both the uh, piece of Cuban drumming that you played and the three drums that I played were on contemporary hardware-tuned drums. Traditional bata drums are not tuned with metal keys. They're tuned in either rope or leather straps. Mm -hmm. So they sound different than what you've been hearing. Um, But those drums uh, are sacred drums. And um, I'm not going to play my sacred drums (laughs) for you on your radio show. Sorry, folks. Those those drums are played for ceremonial context only. So what we heard um, you play are not sacred drums. No, not at oh. all. Those are what we, are secular drums. Secular drums. So, so obviously <clears> a, <throat> a lot of changes from the time that um, Yoruba drumming was brought to Cuba by the slaves and today. Enormous. Now, in Nigeria, the Bata tradition um, was sort of dying out for quite some time, especially <clears throat> uh, with the influx of Christianity and Islam threatening the, the traditional Yoruba faith. How is Bata doing in, in Cuba and also in the United States and, and elsewhere now? Well, um, the opposite. The opposite. Taken off. But taken off. Uh, Bata drumming in Cuba is a thriving art form and a thriving sacred music form and has since, has since left the island <laughs> uh, and gone... Uh, of course, to Miami, and of course, to New York City, and of course, to Los Angeles, and I will say, of course, to San Francisco, but also, to, you know, um, uh, to a variety of places. Um, to uh, There's an owner of Sacred Drums who lives in Fresno, California. There, you know, there are other towns in this country, uh, New Orleans, um, uh, and... I know there's a set of sacred drums in France. Um, so this has been, been an explosion of, of bata drumming around the world. And, and Santeria is, is attracting new um, adherents, too, around the world. Yes, that is true. Certainly true. Yeah. Um, in large numbers. Right. Now, you've been, um, in addition to playing traditional bata, both the uh, sacred and secular varieties, all these years, you've done some innovative experiments with bata. Yeah. Um, you've collaborated with musicians from other other genres, other traditions, and merged yeah. the two. Yeah. Um, and I'd sort of like to to go out um, with an example of that kind of fusion. Yeah, I would say right that word. I'm actually probably more known for that, in a sense, maybe than anything, and probably the thing that I'm 
most proud of in a funny way. I could make traditional bata recordings till I'm blue in the face, and uh, but I would still be sort of copying what somebody else did. Uh, so I'm very proud of the stuff that I do that have sort of been mixing and combining and and demonstrating the 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 common roots of a lot of musics, uh, particularly between Cuba and Brazil. That's sort of my area of expertise. Uh, and I, uh, along with a guy named Mark Lampson, made a record back in the 90s called Bataketu that sort of made me famous in this little esoteric world. I mean, famous amongst five people in the world, <laughs> but amongst those five people, I'm a pretty well-known guy. Well, let, let's add another few people to the okay. list by playing a, a selection from... Um, that collaboration. That sure, that'd be great. Yeah. And just uh, why don't you introduce the piece and we'll play it. Um, uh, well, I think I'll, I'll, I'll play for you um, the piece that uh, features Bobby Cespedes, um, very well-known Afro-Cuban singer from Conjunto Cespedes. Um, this is a piece called Osain uh, that really does c uh, combine both Cuban and Brazilian Yoruba traditions. Uh Along, she's the female vo lead voice that you'll hear, and the male voice is Georgie Alabe, who has since moved to the Bay Area, uh, a Brazilian master musician. Uh, and um, this was a piece that got a lot of play around the world, actually, for whatever the reasons may be. Great. Well, we'll go out on that. Mike Spiro, thank you. My pleasure, Robert. Truly. Guru, guru, To learn more about Mike Spiro and his music, go to michaelspiro.com. Spiro is spelled S-P-I-R-O. For KUSP, I'm Robert Polly.